0: among y'all Karis I was kind of nervous and and she said she was saying um, just think of it as family devotional we like know everybody here and, and really that's that's kind of what this is partly because the message is about uh meditating on the word but also uh just because we're all here together I I'm I'm really encouraged and excited to talk to y'all uh but humbled as well partly because you know preaching the word is is a, a weighty thing it's not something to be taken lightly but then also a lot of you have been really profound influences in my life and in Karis's life and my, my children's lives and so it feels I don't know full circle it feels it feels just like a, a great privilege and honor to be able to to bring the word to y'all and also to people who who I think I respect so highly. Um it's it's it feels weird that I'm I'm the one sharing. But uh the Lord Lord can share share wisdom even out of out of fools like me. So, we're going to jump into Psalm 1. L- let me pray for us and then and then we'll get started. Jesus, we thank you for your word. God, I, I ask that that your word would would Run forth swiftly today, that it would multiply, that it would create fruit, Jesus, um, we ask that through this time, God, that you would be highly exalted, that that all of us would come to to more greatly treasure you, Jesus, to love your word, to desire it, God, that you would draw us deeper into discipleship, God, you say that that whenever you um, like you've started a work, you're going to bring it to completion. God, I just ask that maybe even today you would even start something, start something new, Lord, um, a deeper, deeper like connection with and desire for your word and your instruction, Jesus, and that you'd bring it to completion that today we'd we'd help like encourage something uh, that that honors you, Jesus. Uh, so yeah, be beyond be my words that they would it would make sense and and be encouraging and I, I thank you that you're, you're already moving in our hearts, and uh, we, just, we just wait expectantly for what you're going to do today. pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So today, we are looking at Psalm 1, and I just wanted to start off just, just by reading it. So I'm going to ask, actually, if you're, if you're able, if you'd stand. It's only six verses, so it's not too long. If you'd stand, and if we would read the word I'm reading from the ESV, so if you read from another version from your phone or something, that'll be weird. But you do you. Uh, So if you want to look up here, we're going to read Psalm 1. It's just six verses. So it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither in all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. All right. Thank you. Y'all me be seated. All right. So, this this passage, I think it's probably familiar to many of us. We've probably heard those words. I know a lot of my friends who are like, you know, want us as kids or something, they memorized this and got candy and stuff, but this this passage is relatively simple. It's not a difficult, complex passage where you really have to. to, it's difficult to understand, but... It's difficult to, to implement. G.K. Chesterton has this famous quote that many of us have probably heard where he says that, um, I'm going to butcher it, something along the lines of that the, the the Christian life hasn't been tried and found wanting. It's been tried and found difficult and then left untried, right? And so this is one of those passages. It's actually pretty simple, but it's profound and it's challenging to follow through because of what we'll talk about in this passage. So the summary of this passage, I'll, I'll give you the spoiler alert. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it, it has two paths. There are these two paths that we can follow. One often is called the, the path of life, and one is the path of death, right, in other times in the Bible. And one is followed by, by conforming to the ways of this world. And if we follow that path, we'll find our life wasted. The other is meditating on the instruction of of the Lord. And as we do that, we will find our lives being um, made more firm, and that fruit will come for that. So that's, that's the basic message. So let's go to lunch. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you wish. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's pretty simple. So because it's pretty simple, really, I, I think I want to do what it says, right? It says that as we meditate on the law, we will delight in it. And as we delight in it, we're going to meditate on it. And it's going to change us and make us firm and fruitful. And so really, I just want to walk through the passage and meditate on it. And then I want to look and say, what does this passage have to do with Jesus? So that's, that's, that's what I'm going to try to do. So before we jump into, into the actual passage, I think it's always a good practice to consider the context. A lot of times when we consider that, it'll help us understand better what the passage means. So this is the very first psalm. If you want to use a fancy word, it's the, it's the summary of the Psalter. The Psalter is all of the Psalms, so you can earn some cool points if you use that word. But uh, it's, it's, it's the introduction, and, and most people believe that it was intended to be an introduction and a summary of all the Psalms. Right? It's this saying, meditate on the instruction of the Lord. That is a summary of all the Psalms. So now, you don't have to read any other Psalms. You're done, guys, right? Good. No. No. Uh, but it's, that's, that's the summary, and it's, it's intending to say meditate on these, these prayers and these songs and, and the psalms. Meditate on these things, and it actually is going to impact your life, right? We don't know the author of this. Most of the, the first 42 psalms are written by David, but they'll say so, and this one doesn't, so we don't know who, who necessarily wrote this one. But the, we know the style, the, the, the style here is a genre called the wisdom psalms, they're intended to teach wisdom, but it actually has a subgenre. Within that genre, it is a style called the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are, there's about five to seven psalms that start off with a, blessed are those who, blah, 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 for they will, blah, blah, blah. Right? And, and that's, that's how this psalm works. And it, one of the, the really neat things, you probably have heard that word, Beatitude, because Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he begins with his Beatitudes. And one thing is, I was reflecting on this and thinking, it's it's cool to think Jesus meditated on Psalm 1. He thought about this psalm, and he loved not just the content, but he loved the style so much that whenever he created his now most famous sermon, probably, he used that same style. And it's humbling to think that Jesus himself meditated on this psalm, right? If anybody didn't need to meditate on the psalms, it's Jesus. But... Jesus meditated on it so deeply that he used that style in his speaking and his teaching, right? How much more do we need to as well? So, but, and, and also before we get in, another thing that's really useful to do is, is to, if, if you're meditating on scriptures, uh, meditating on the context, but also making sure you understand specific words. There's a lot of words that we use in our lives that, that kind of lose their meaning because we say them so much. And blessed is one of them. We see hashtag blessed all over the place uh, on, on Twitter and Instagram and something. But so this this passage starts off with blessed is the man who. And I want to make sure that it's it's not just men who can be blessed, right? That's how they wrote back then. This is blessed is the one who, right? And it's, it's so blessed is the man who. This word blessed is the word esser. It's like a conjugate of the word ashrei, which most people usually translate as happy. But again, even, even happy, we have many different... When I say the word happy, in our mind, many people picture different things. Like, some of you might picture... I don't know, I, I picture like a really good hamburger or something like that, right? We all picture... like Some of us might picture very different things. Some of you might picture being with your grandkids. Or, you know, it's, it's very different. And so, even then, happiness also often is, is associated with a complete lack of pain. And that's not what, what the word esser means. It's, it's, it's an enduring joy that, that goes beyond pain, that can, can experience pain but still still experience joy, even in that. And so one I was reading different things, and I felt like the best translation I saw of that word blessed is the good life. And it's like saying, oh, the good life of the one who does these things. Because the good life, we all know if someone has a good life, we're not saying someone who everything is just rainbows and puppies every single day. We're saying someone, who, even as they go through difficult things, they, they're experiencing uh, the good life. They are able to endure those things and be fruitful even in those things, right? So I think that's, I just wanted to make sure we define that word. And actually, fun fact, the word Esser, modern Hebrew is different than ancient Hebrew. And in modern Hebrew, Esser is the word for tin. And if you watch commercials and stuff, they'll say, this shampoo is Esser, right? And it's saying, it still kind of means the same thing. They're saying it's a tin, right? That's like, say, my wife is a tin, right? Uh, Sorry, Karis. But uh, it still means something along the lines of great or happy. Or really good, even today, even thousands of years later. But I, before I even jump in, just that first line, blessed is the one who, or, or the, you know, oh, the good life of the one who, I just wanted to point out one or two little points that even, even that, I think, shows us something. One, it shows us that the good life is actually possible, right? I think sometimes we can get really jaded. And we can think, this isn't even possible, things are just hard, you can't be happy all the time, and and to some degree that there's there's truth to not being just happy all the time. But this blessedness, it is possible, It is not naive for us as believers to think that we can live a life of faithfulness and service and joy before the Lord, even in the midst of suffering and trials, Right? For, for our, our modern world, that's actually an astounding statement, that the good life is possible. Right? But not only that, as you know, we already read the passage once, so I'm going to jump around a little bit. But not only is the good life possible, but we have some measure of influence over that, right? Because as we, as we go, you know, we, we see here, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on the, on the law of the Lord he meditates day and night. And therefore, he's like a tree planted by streams of water is, is the next part. So, so we have some measure of control over where we're planted, right? We can't control everything in our lives, but we do have some measure of control over where we are planted. So um, let's, let's, again, let's, let's just start going through. And I just want to meditate on some of these things um, and practice meditating on the, on the law of the Lord, so it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So a couple things I, I noticed immediately. And, and, and I just wanted to say, as, as we meditate, some of the, the common methods we might use is reading things, and then reading things again, and then reading things again. And reading them in maybe different translations. You know, Andrew was was reading the communion passage from the message. Because when we read things in different translations, it kind of just jogs us out of our, our slumber, our, our sleep, you know. So reading it in different translations, reading commentaries, talking to other people about them. Right? My my dad, who's one of the most humble, godly men I know, he he always writes when he like has scripture, he'll write it on a note card and put it in his pocket. And just throughout the day, he'll just kinda kinda look at it. That's a great practice. I've been trying to do it, and I'm kind of bad at it, but it's just a great practice just to, just to meditate on it. I mean, you know, I know Keith, he'll, he'll sing scriptures a lot, just sing them and meditate, ask questions of the text, like, what does this mean? Why did he say it this way, right? And all those practices, they help us meditate and just kind of juice it, right, and get all the, all the pulp out of, out of scripture. So um, some of the things, things that I found and you know, Many of y'all probably found much more than this, so. But we're gonna jump in. So, Blessed is Man, notice he has the, the verbs here when he's talking about the, the one who does not, who is not blessed. He starts with walking, and then he stands, and then he sits. That there is a natural progression of sin, that we can start by walking in others' counsel, and then we'll find us standing in the way of sinners. And then we'll find us ourselves sitting. There's a natural progression of getting stuck in sin. That is how it works. And I would, I would uh, probably say we've all probably experienced that at some point in our lives, unfortunately. But that is how sin works, right? Notice, notice though that it's not saying. Actually, it's fun, interesting kind of fact. This was a source text for the Pharisees when they criticized Jesus for being among sinners. They told, oh, Jesus is eating with sinners? Jesus is, is being around uh, tax collectors? This was one of their source texts for saying why that was wrong, right? And it's interesting that Jesus and, and the Pharisees both read this text and interpreted it wildly differently, right? The, the, the Pharisees read this and said, well, we can't be around sinners. We can't be around the tax collectors, prostitutes, these people. And Jesus was constantly around those people, Right? Notice it doesn't say you can't walk near the wicked. If that was the case, you probably shouldn't be listening to me right now. Right? We probably shouldn't listen to any of each other. Right? He says, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. You can influence them, but don't be influenced by the wicked. And then he says, don't stand in the way of sinners. And Standing in the way of sinners again—that seems like well, if you're standing in their way, that means you're interacting. But Jesus interacted with them all the time, and it's a little different. I kind of imagine it's like if there's a line of people sinning. It's like oh, I'll I'll just get in line with them and stand. So you're standing in the way. You're doing the same things that they do unquestioningly, right? And then. Uh, he, d- he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, okay? To scoff, I've read a number of commentaries they talked about, scoffing is when you think your way is the only right way, and everyone else is doing it wrong. Your way is the only right way, right? And, and it's interesting, that definitely is the kind of thing you sit in. You don't move from that. Once you think your way is the only way to do things, you can't take on new information or new ways of doing things, Right? And, and one, one commentator actually mentioned that in the ancient world, the people who you sat with, those were the people who you identified with, right? And so this kind of reminds me of like the echo chambers in Facebook, where we only hear the same people who say exactly what we already think, right? And, and it's interesting, he's saying, he, he contrasts that immediately, but, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night, Right? That instead of identifying with our understanding and our way of doing things, if you want to be blessed, we will identify and choose to interpret our understanding of the world through the law of the Lord, right? That word law is the Torah, right? Which is the law or the instruction of God. I think sometimes if we just hear law, we think of the legal aspects, but this, this includes all of the instruction of God. So this includes Jesus' teaching in the New Testament, right? Um, and so so those, those who are blessed, they don't identify with the people around them. They identify with the Lord. And, and notice, notice also this pattern that his, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There's this pattern of meditating, and as you meditate, you delight in God's word, and as you delight on it, you want it more, and so you meditate on it. It's like this beautiful pattern that seems to, to be shown here. And one thing that's interesting, right, is that the person who is like walking in the council of the wicked and standing in the way of sinners and sitting in the seat of scoffers, those people aren't like, ooh, I really want to do some wicked things today. Like, no one really does that. I mean, there's probably some weirdo out there, right? Um, maybe my children. But, um, <laughs> like, like, for the most part, people think, people want to be happy. That is what we are seeking in life. We are seeking happiness. And so the people... Who are seeking happiness, but find their counsel and the people around them, and they start walking in those ways, and they start sitting in those things, they, ultimately, they're seeking happiness, right? And so there's, there's, there's a, a secret here. It's that you can't find happiness by looking for it. If you try to be happy, it's, it'll be like water falling through your hands. If you really want happiness, you must seek something that is above happiness, it's kind of like the um, the teaching of the New Testament that says, like seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Right? If I try to make Karis, like the, the the thing that makes me happy, which I probably have done some, so sorry, babe, uh, and like I will find myself just just hurting, just pummeling our relationship with so many expectations that it, it hurts my marriage, and it caused my marriage to be worse. If I if I make my job the thing that's going to make me happy, like. It's just going to destroy my job. Same thing, if we raise up children and where all of our hopes are placed in our children, it's going to, like, ruin us. So the, the secret here is that as the, we have to seek something higher than, than happiness if we actually want to accomplish it, right? Right. Um, so let's, let's go a little farther. So what happiness looks like, the next, in, in three through four. So it says, this man, this man who's blessed, he's, who, who meditates on the law of the Lord, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. You know, one, one thing that's interesting, and most commentators think that this passage, anybody else heard of in Scripture a time where there's a tree planted by a river? that yields fruit and season? Genesis and Revelation. This is intended to bring to mind the tree of life, that as we meditate on the instruction of God, we will become trees of life to those around us, right? That's a awesome promise, right? And I, and I know some of us have experienced that at different times. When we, we are meditating on the Lord and not ourselves getting in the way and not taking the counsel of those around us, right? That that we've we've experienced this to some measure, right? Notice also, I just wanted to point out, just because I think sometimes as I read this, I can feel a little bit of condemnation because I feel like I don't always yield fruit. And my leaves sometimes fall off, right? But it it doesn't say your leaves are never going to fall off and you're always going to have fruit. It says you're going to yield fruit in season and your leaves won't wither. Withering doesn't mean, that's not what leaves do in the winter, that's not withering. Leaves naturally die in the winter. Wither is when you don't get enough water during a normal season, right? And so this doesn't mean that you will always be, this doesn't mean you're going to be Jesus, right? You're not. You're not going to be Jesus, right? You're not going to be always 100% perfect, but it does mean that you're going to yield fruit in season, and that that, your leaf won't wither out of season, right? Um, so that's an encouragement. I also, I just wanted, one of the questions that I had as I read this passage that challenged me is I read this and I kind of thought, it doesn't this seem too simple? Like if you just meditate on the Bible, then everything's gonna be great. Sounds like, I don't know, an infomercial I see. If I just, I don't know, buy this one product, everything's gonna be better. Right, and, and I, I think that there is complexity to this, but as, as I read this and I was challenged and thinking, this seems too simple, I just, I just wanted to share. I was reading a book by, I think, a guy named Edward Welch, I think is his name, I couldn't remember, and he had a quote that kind of just stuck out to me, and he said that God's love and his ways are much more sophisticated than we can imagine and you know and that, and that it's, it''s it's similar to in in Ephesians three, where he's talking about he prays that the saints would ha, would would be able to comprehend the breadth and the height and the depth of and it says, and to know the love of Christ it surpasses knowledge right that that God's love and his ways they're 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 more sophisticated than we think they can do things in our lives that are beyond our understanding, which makes sense. If there really is a God who created the entire universe and is currently at every single moment sustaining every single like subatomic particle that makes up everything we've ever interacted with, surely that God, his methods would be beyond our understanding. But I think as, as I read this, not as only is it beyond understanding, but I think sometimes I assume that means we will always see them as complex and complicated. And when we, when we see them, we think, oh, well, this is very complex. Sometimes they might seem simple, right? Which, which is honestly a great mercy of God that he would make things simple for those. Some of us are pretty simple, right? <laughs> Let's be real here. So that, that God makes things simple so that even the most simple-minded among us can engage with the Lord, Right? But that doesn't mean that it's not sophisticated and complex and able to to work in very sophisticated ways in our lives. So anyways, that was just an encouragement that I feel like the Lord had to me as I was questioning this text. Um, So another another thing I wanted to, well, so I, I just want to point this out and I'm going to come back to it in a second. That in all that he does, he prospers. I want to point that out because it's something I want to talk about in a second, but this also challenged me because when we think of it, and other translations say in all that he does, he has success, that if we meditate on the Lord, we'll have success in all that we do. It's like, well, I don't know. I played pickleball the other day and I got beat, (laughs) right? And I like, I don't know, yelled at my wife the other day and I, uh, I don't know, I don't always prosper. I don't always have success. I mean, I don't always meditate on the law of the Lord so me. But, but the, does, does that mean that if if we meditate on the law of the Lord, we're going to be promoted to, like, manager at our work? And does it mean—because that's what I think of when I think of success and prosperity. And so I, I just want to pin that and come back to it in a minute. Um, but but notice again, he says, but the wicked, they're like this chaff that the wind drives away. And again, he's, he's this imagery of dust that just, just flutters in the wind. Right, and he goes on. He says, "There, this, this, these last two verses are kind of a summary of the whole whole um, chapter. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." So, notice any time you have a repetition of words, that's that's always something to kind of kind of kind of notice. He says, "Therefore, the wicked will not stand." We've already heard the word "stand." Those who are going to stand with the wicked now will not be able to stand in the congregation of the righteous, will, will not stand in the judgment, right? It's, it's almost like he's reminding us that, connecting when he says that. Um, but one thing that stuck out to me, he says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That word knows isn't a cognitive understanding. That word knows is the same words that is used. Uh, use my words carefully here. It's how Adam knew Eve, right? This isn't a cognitive knowledge. This is an intimate experiential knowledge right it's it's it is kind of confirming this message that meditating on the law of the lord it's not just a cognitive i understand what this this passage means it is and actually that word for meditating it's used a few other times in scripture for meditating on scripture but it's also used in in ancient world for whenever a bear Would, as it's eating food, it growls as it's like eating whatever it just took. Or uh, a mother dove that coos over its young. It's the same term. The same word for meditation is those two terms. It's this interacting with and this like personal, consuming, loving way, right? And so, so, I don't know, I thought that that was an interesting point. It's not some cognitive knowledge. It's an experiential uh, chewing on the cud, right? So, what? What? But I think here's here's I think the best part of Psalm one is what Psalm one tells us about Jesus, and and it it's not immediately obvious that Psalm one is connected to Jesus, but I have a, a deep seated belief, and I know a lot of people here too, that all Scripture ultimately does point to Jesus. Jesus is the consummation of all Scripture, and so that's one of the reasons I want to say it. But then also. As, as believers, our, our ultimate goal for everything we do is treasuring, adoring, worshiping Christ. And so I, I want to I look at this in light of Jesus. And, and the reason I think I can is, remember I said that the genre of Psalm 1 is wisdom, a wisdom psalm. In, in the New Testament, when they talk about Jesus, there's a few different kind of metaphors. They talk about Jesus as the word of God. Jesus talked about as the light of the world. One of the, the most common ways in the epistles, Paul's epistles, is he's the, he's the wisdom of God. Right? And so I think sometimes we can read things that are like wisdom, like the Proverbs and stuff, or, or some Psalms, and it, it's not immediately clear how to apply it personally in our lives. But if Jesus is the wisdom of God, we can look at his life and see this lived out. We can see what Psalm 1 looks like, lived out practically in Jesus. And not only that, some some commentators actually say that the Beatitudes in the Old and New Testament are the autobiography of Jesus. They are Jesus talking about himself, right? And he shows us how that looks. And so I want to look, I want to kind of go a little bit line by line and just say, how does Jesus, like, exemplify these? Again, partly so we can see how it looks out. looks like lived out and partly just so we can treasure Christ. Right. So blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Let's think about that. Jesus was constantly with sinners. Constantly, I mean really always because we're all sinners, but constantly with not just like sinners, but the people who are like, oh, they're sinners, right? But we see Jesus not in their counsel. In John 224, this is Right after Jesus had turned the tables over in the temple and then he does some miracles and he he goes and he's doing these miracles and it says, but Jesus did not entrust himself to the people because he knew them and he knew what was in their hearts, right? He didn't entrust himself to them. There was something he guarded in his heart when he was among the people because he knew what was in them, right? In Matthew 16, 23, Peter, you know, Jesus starts talking about his death and his persecution. Peter starts to say, hey, Jesus, that's, let's, let's talk about this. That's not a great idea. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He rebukes Peter. And, he, you know, he constantly asks Peter, what do people say about me? But when, when Peter comes and, and his, he gives him instruction that is, that is opposite of the instruction of the Lord, like, Jesus rebukes him. Right? And I think, I think the greatest example of this is in Jesus' temptation in the desert. It's in, it's in three of the Gospels, but Matthew 4, if you if you look at that. And, and P.S., I just want to—I am a teacher, so I get to give you homework. So I, I just want to encourage you all. I'm going to give you, like, three or four scriptures today. And if you want to write it down on your phone or if you're making notes or something, if you want to write them down, that I just really want to encourage you all. I think these are, are easy scriptures as we meditate on just to get lots of vitamin C packed. You know, uh, I don't know. They're, they're just full— and, and, and the temptation is one of them. Jesus' temptation is one. It's, it's one of the hardest points, I believe, in his life, right? And I just want to talk about it for a second. Notice, so Satan comes, and Satan tempts him with, with these three temptations, okay? And, and Matthew 4 is one of them. So, I, again, I want, Matthew 4 is your first homework assignment, if you all want to take a day this week just to meditate on Matthew 4. Um, but but when, when Satan tempts him, Jesus' response each time is just scripture. If Again, if anyone in the history of the planet is equipped to be able to, to speak on their own authority and say other things, it's Jesus. But for whatever reason, when he's tempted by Satan, he only says scripture. He doesn't elaborate on it. He doesn't say, and that means this. He just says it, and then he stops, and he says, that's enough. Right? I mean, he doesn't say that's enough. <laughs> he stops, and that's that's all he says. It's almost stark. When, when you read it, you like kind of wish he would elaborate more, but he says, that's all he says, and it's like he's saying, this is enough. This is enough for me, and and maybe I'm going beyond the text here just a little bit, but I think I have to believe whenever we read The Temptation of the Desert, that it it was actually difficult for Jesus. He actually wanted to eat. He was actually to some degree tempted, right? And so when I, when I think about that, I think that Jesus, those words, when he, when he said scripture, it was just as much to defend against the word of the wicked as it was to comfort himself, right? And, and at the very least, it reveals in the most diff- one of the most difficult times of Jesus' life what's coming out of him, scripture, Right? It shows that he has meditated on these words in all kinds we don't we don't get to see all the times Jesus read scripture as, as a young boy, as a young man. We don't get to see all those times, but we see here the fruit of that. That fruit that it talks about in in, uh, in Psalm one verse th- three and four when it says he's 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 been planted and he's he's you know that he's bearing fruit. Like we see that in Jesus. Okay. Next blessed is the man who walks or stands not in the way of sinners, right? We see Jesus does not just go along with every single thing that everyone else is doing. Right? We we see in in uh, Mark 11:15, Jesus goes in the temple and is flipping tables, right? That you know the the temple had been set up for probably like 50, 60, 70 years at that point and that probably been happening the whole time. People like selling and exchange, changing money and stuff. That had probably been happening for decades. And nobody had thought we should, this, is, this is wrong. Maybe people had thought it was wrong, but they didn't do anything about it. But Jesus was willing to go against social convention and, and go in there and flip over tables. We see also in Matthew 23, remember, you know, at Jesus' time, the people who were the most holy people, the Pharisees. And in Matthew 20C, 23, Again, this is your, your second homework passage. This passage is the most intense, I, I think, in my personal opinion. We see Jesus be the most. He rips into the Pharisees, unlike he does for anybody. And and I just want to challenge you to read this because it's challenging. Because as you read it, you see yourself, and you're just like, oh, because because it's hard. And and he just destroys them, right? He says, he tells people, do what they say, but don't do what they do. They, 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 they won't, they'll, they'll give people all these heavy burdens and they don't lift a finger to help them, right? But then we see Jesus, he, he does, he's also willing to say really hard teachings. But he doesn't walk in the way of sinners. He doesn't do the same thing as the Pharisees. He goes and he lifts a finger, right? He, he gives everything to to love and to, like, help those who are, who are, who are living in sin, right? And so um, that's another time where I, I think we just really see Jesus not standing in the way of sinners. He's willing to, like, to, to do things differently than, than the status quo. Um, blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of scoffers, right? And um, in, in I think the, the, the first one that comes to my mind is John 8, the adulterous woman. Right, they bring, bring Jesus the woman who's committed adultery. What should we do, this woman? And it's that's where he says the famous line: "Let him who's out without sin cast the first stone." Right, and then once they all walk away, he says, "Woman, did did no one condemn you? Then neither do I." Right. We see Jesus instead of scoffing, instead of saying like, "I'm just gonna I'm gonna sit sit here high and mighty. I know what's right, so I get to bash you over the head with it." He has compassion and he has mercy on others, right? And actually, even in Matthew 23, that passage we just talked about where Jesus rips into the Pharisees, it's, again, it's, it's, it's his most scathing rebuke of anyone. But you know how it ends? The end of Matthew 23 doesn't end with, all you Pharisees are stinky and I don't want to talk to you ever again. It ends with him saying, how I long to gather you underneath my wings, Right, but you weren't willing. Like it's it's done out of love and compassion, not out of scoffing and let me put you down so that I can feel good about myself. It's like I'm gonna bring you this hard stuff because that is what you need. But I love you, but I, I want you. Right? We we don't see Jesus scoffing, right? But blessed is the man who his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So it's actually kind of crazy when you look you know, at the Gospels. We really don't have, compared to someone's whole life, we don't have all that many words of Jesus, right? We have, we have these four books, and a lot of them overlap, you know. But in, in what we have, we have 76 times where Jesus quoted directly or referenced the Old Testament. And some scholars have tried to calculate it out. They think about one-tenth of what Jesus said was either quoting or referencing Old Testament scripture, right? I mean, the New Testament wasn't around. So if you're wondering, how much scripture should I say? Maybe shoot for one-tenth, one-tenth of your words. You could go for one-tenth of your conversations, right? Uh, but, um, so, so that's one thing. Let's, let's look at a few, a few specific things. So Luke 2, when Jesus was even a boy, we see him in the temple. You know, his parents had gone back. Jesus is sitting there tr- learning about the scriptures as a young boy. Right Jesus had to learn the scriptures. We know he had like supernatural knowledge from God, but we also know he had to learn things also to some degree. Right? So in Luke 2 we see that even as boy Jesus. We know that Jesus throughout his ministry took time out for prayer. And I'm again I'm going beyond the text a little bit, but I assume that whenever he took time for prayer, that was meditation on scripture during that time. Most a, a lot a lot of rabbis back then, and a lot of young Jewish boys memorized, large sections of the Torah. So they didn't, they didn't have, you know, the Bible in their pocket or on an app, but they, they had it on their minds, right? That was a command in the Old Testament, was to keep it on your forehead, to think about it, right? Another, this is, this is maybe sketchy, but I'm going I'm to say this. In, in Luke 4, when Jesus starts his ministry, he goes into the, the, the synagogue in Capernaum, or something? To him. And they give him the scroll for Isaiah, and that's when he reads, um, you know, the, the he quotes the Old Testament whenever he or quotes the book of Isaiah when he says, like, this I've come to declare the year of the Lord's favor to rescue the captive. I don't know if you know this, but those scrolls, we have some of them. We have some scrolls from Jesus' day. They're massive. They're massive, they're huge. And they didn't chapters and verses. Those were added later. They didn't have chapters and verses. They just had these massive scrolls. And it says Jesus opened it, and he knew exactly where he was going. And again, I'm, going, I'm, I'm inferring a little bit, but it seems like Jesus had such a familiarity with Isaiah, which is one of the longest books of the Old Testament, that he could immediately go to exactly where he wanted. right? And that passage in Isaiah, it's not the beginning of Isaiah. It's like in the very middle of Isaiah. So again, I'm just saying we have these clues that Jesus knew scripture, right? He had spent a lot of time meditating on it. And again, if anybody doesn't need to meditate on scripture, you would think it's Jesus, right? Um, but then I, the, the ones that I think are, are the most profound for me personally, thinking about Jesus meditating on scripture, is, is what, comes out of, what comes out of him in his most difficult times. Abraham Lincoln had some quote along the lines of, if you want to know what a man is really like, see what he's like when he's like angry and suffering. Something along those lines. I just butchered that quote. Sorry, Abe. But the we see Jesus on the cross, in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of pain, scripture is coming out of him, right? We see in, in Matthew 27, 46, he quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's, that's uh, verse one, the first line of Psalm 22. That's your, that's your next homework. And that one, if you don't do anyone, do Psalm 22. Go and just look at it. Because Psalm 22... Well, let me, let me just give you a little background. And You've probably heard this before. Most, most biblical scholars or, or even Judy, scholars of Judaism know that the best rabbis back in the day in the ancient world, they knew scripture so much. When they would get together to talk, instead of like quoting an entire chapter, they would just quote the first line. And the other person would be like, oh, well, but did you know? And they would quote the first line of something else. And they would have a conversation. It's kind of like if, if we were to like, I don't know, if we were like trying to communicate with each other, but I was, I was like quoting like Disney songs like, oh, but some things never change. And you were like, oh, but uh, into the unknown. Or, you know, and we like go back and forth. And we say one line from these like Disney songs, and it implies like all of the content of the whole song. They did that with Psalms. So obviously they're cooler than we are. But this is the first line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? and and again i'm i'm using a little license here but i you know we we see that we see that god is 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 like removed himself from jesus and i think that that's real and true but i have to wonder read the rest of psalm 22 it is a messianic psalm it has all throughout it is these prophecies of jesus and and specifically jesus on the cross about being surrounded by murderers right about people um people gambling for his clothes. But I also wonder if Jesus was comforting himself and speaking, he wasn't just speaking Psalm 1 verse 1, he was saying, or Psalm 22 verse 1, he was saying all of Psalm 22, which starts off with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it it goes on to say, you have not uh, rejected those who are afflicted. He's comforting himself. It goes on to say, all will come. All of those around the world will come and worship at your table, right? That Jesus is not saying, God, where are you? I don't know where you are. I don't, I don't know if you're real anymore. He's saying, God, I'm struggling, but I know that you're good. And I know that one day you will make all things right. I, I, I wonder if that's what he's saying in Psalm 22, not just this first line. He's saying that first line to represent the entire thing. And then his last words, Luke 23, 46, the very last words Jesus says in his like earthly ministry before, before resurrecting is, into your hands I commit my spirit, which is a passage from Psalm 31. And man, I just, again, that's, that's, that's your last homework. If you go to Psalm 31, you can say like, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's this, uh, you know, it definitely communicates this sense of, of Jesus being at one with with the Father's will, even in the difficult times. But if you just start reading through it, I probably shouldn't spend too much time, but it, it, the, the, the end says, Blessed be to the Lord. He's wonderfully shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city, right? I said in alarm, I'm cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help, right? The Lord preserves the faithful and abundantly repays the one who acts in pride, right? And so so I just wonder if these passages, one Jesus is speaking truth, that we see scripture is just what comes out of him because he's so familiar. But also, if in those moments he is comforting himself and reminding himself and preaching a sermon to himself of God's truth while he's going through suffering, right? And if, if, that's, if that's what Jesus is doing, then surely that's like what would be good for us, um, I want to look at this, the, this next section. So then it says, and this is back to Psalm 1, uh, verses 3 and 4. It says, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So here we see Jesus is the pinnacle of this passage. He is the, the reincarnation, I don't know if that's the right word, of the tree of life. Right? He has become the tree of life for us through his obedience, through his meditation on the word and obedience to it. He has become the tree of life that creates fruit and season. Okay? But I want, I want to take just another second to that last line. In all that he does, he prospers. In all that he does, he is successful. Do you think of Jesus as being prosperous, as being successful? Right? I said whenever I, I think of this, I think as successful as being like, I don't know, I'm getting recognized at work for doing something good or something like that, or, I don't know, we have enough money to provide for our families. That's what we typically think of as successful and prosperous. But, again, if, if it's true that Jesus is the, the incarnation of wisdom, if he is, this is, these bad attitudes are the autobiography of Jesus – Maybe Jesus was the most prosperous and successful person to ever walk the earth. And what did that look like for him? Right? And was Jesus the most blessed person? Right? If this is all about being blessed. And we know Jesus counted himself as one who's cursed so that we could be blessed. But it makes me wonder about our definitions of prosperity and of success and what Jesus' definition was. Like, what was Jesus' definition of being successful? Because my, my initial thought was maybe it, it was his, his idea was being successful was um, like accomplishing these goals he had, right? Of, of, of sharing with his disciples. But we, but we see in the garden Jesus saying, not my will, but yours, God. Like, I don't want to do my will. Right? And it's like, well, what is, wait a second. So what, what is his, his definition of success? And I, I have to think that his definition of success is obedience. That Jesus, if, he's, if he, he got to the end when he said, into your hands I commit my spirit, it's like him saying, I was successful. I am prosperous. And, and I just want to try to align my heart that in my life, that's what success is. It's not just not yelling at my kids. It's not just going to work and 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 doing what I'm supposed to do at work. It's it's being obedient to Jesus in every circumstance in in those in those things. And that 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 seems to be what Jesus maybe defines success as. So anyways, that's just something that I was thinking about a lot as I read through that. So as I said the Psalm one. the basic message is that we, if we conform these, these two paths, one is conforming to the ways of this world and wasting your life, and the other one is meditating on the instruction of the Lord and becoming both firm and fruitful. So, the last thing I want to leave us with is is just kind of a challenge, a couple of thoughts. So, Tim Keller, who who passed away recently, is a big influence on on me and Karis, uh, and and he, I was reading a book recently and. It, it's, a, it's kind of a biography, but instead of just talking about his life, it talks about all the different people who influenced Tim Keller. And he said, a lot of people, when they, when they would hear him preach, they would say, how does he get so much out of one small verse? Like he would read one verse, and he would be like, have all these incredible insights. Just like, how does he get all this stuff out of it? And he said that there was, when he was in college, he was in InterVarsity Fellowship, some organization, and he went to this, this training and at that training, there was some lady who wasn't like, you know, hadn't gone to seminary. She just really loved studying the Bible, and so she was training them. And she had this this, this auditorium of 150 students or something along those lines. And they were reading Mark 1:14, which is the passage where it says, "Come and I will make you fishers of men." That's it. That's a whole that's a whole verse, right? Uh, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And she said. We're, I want us to get 50 things out of this verse. And everybody's like, oh, okay. So, like, so split up into little groups, and everybody start, start coming. What conclusions can you get from this verse? And they started for like 10 minutes. They were just all trying to get it. And they said they came back, and they got like 10 or 15 things out of that verse, Mark 1, 114. And the lady said, we aren't leaving until we get 50 things out of this verse. And they were like, this lady's crazy, right? Uh, so and maybe they're making up weird stuff. I don't know. But they started saying, okay, well, let's read the verses before and after it and see if that gets something. Anybody here a fisher? Maybe you know something. You can tell us why this makes more sense. And they started just going deeper and digging and digging. And they finally got to 50, and everybody cheered and stuff. They were happy. And the lady, she said, okay, I want people, raise your hand if the most profound thing that you got from this verse came in those first 10 minutes, and not a single person raised their hand. Every single person said the most profound message they got from that verse was not in their initial reading or even their like first few readings or even their first 10 15 minutes of talking with people. It came from a prolonged almost awkward just juicing of the passage. And Tim, Tim Keller said uh, that no one finds the deepest veins of gold at the mouth of the cave. You find the greatest treasures after thorough exploration. And so I just want to challenge us that that this this passage, again, it's, it's, its main message is, let's just meditate. Meditate on God's instruction, right? And But I think that meditation, there is more for us than we think there. Last summer, whenever we moved to, to College Station, you know, I'm a, I'm a teacher, and so in the summers, I have very little routine, and I can get out of reading, and I got out of it for a little while, and then I was like, what in the world is happening? Y'all know that, that like it's like coming out of a drunken stupor or something, and you're know, like, "Oh yeah, the Bible, right?" I forgot, you know. And so I started reading, and I just wasn't really getting much out of it. And I was I was really kind of disheartened because I, I felt like, well, isn't this supposed to be God's word? It's supposed to get? And and I, I read a book. I, th- I feel like this was the Steve Kessler recommendations. All of my, a lot of my good books are, are recommendations from people in this room. But um, and I wanted to read a quote because this book is grasping God's word. And it really challenged me. So in, in this book, it, he says, "God wants to have a deeper and more mature sorry, God wants to have deeper and more mature conversations with you. But if you're tied to superficial and surface readings of the Bible, or if you always assume that you've already seen, you already understand all there is, then your relationship with God will tend to stay at the same level. There is more yet to find. Don't quit. Keep digging. Then he goes on to say, he says, observe, look some more, observe some more, look again, ask questions of the text, look again, see more, dig, make notes, make, mark the observations you see, reread the passage, look for further details, there is more, keep digging. And so I, I want to encourage us to, to be creative in meditating on the word of God. One really great practice is every time you read something, make it a point to share it with someone that day, right? Right? Don't do the same person every single day because then, you know, they're the easy person, right? But make it a point to try to share it with somebody. Make And, and again, you can just say, hey, let's talk about this. Or it could be, hey, I, I read this thing. It could be encouraging to you, right? Use note cards. Like, do, read, read through commentaries. I can, Keith has a great library of commentaries. I saw him in his house one time and I was like, my, I was salivating over them, right? And so he would, you know he loved to let you borrow some of those things, right? So I just want to encourage us one that meditating on the lord that it like i said that, that it it is more sophisticated than we think to create profound change in our lives but true but sorry but two as we as we meditate there's more depth than we realize as we keep on digging as we keep on pushing as we keep on looking we can I think I think it'll drive us to deeper and more mature conversations in our relationship with God that will change us to become that tree of life so um let me pray for us, and then and then we'll we'll go.